A reading from the book of John, chapter 11, verses 33 through 44. Jesus, therefore, when he saw her weeping, and the Jews that were come with her weeping, groaned in the spirit, and troubled himself, and said, Where have you laid him? They say to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. The Jews therefore said, Behold, how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he that opened the eyes of the man born blind have caused that this man should not die? Jesus, therefore again groaning in himself, cometh to the sepulchre. Now it was a cave, and a stone was laid over it. Jesus saith, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith to him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he is now of four days. Jesus saith to her, Did I not say to thee, that if thou believe, thou shalt see the glory of God? And they took, therefore, the stone away. And Jesus, lifting up his eyes, said, Father, I give thee thanks that thou hast heard me, and I knew that thou hearest me always, but because of the people who stand about have I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. When he had said this, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And presently he that had been dead came forth, bound feet and hands with winding bands, and his face was bound about with a napkin. Jesus said to them, Loose him and let him go. Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome, welcome back to Catholic with a Zen mind. I am your host, Joseph Martin. <clears throat> and here at Catholic with the Zen mind, well, we, we we take Buddhism and concepts of it, Zen Buddhism in particular. And we pit them against Catholic teaching. Now, we just don't pit them against Catholic teaching. We use Catholic teaching to uncover teachings that we have that are either exactly the same or extremely similar. That's our goal here. We use Dewey Rames, we use Trent. We use all other sorts of sources. Aquinas. Uh, 
other church fathers, all sorts of stuff. And uh, we uncover the Zen of Catholicism without trying, <laughs> with w without breaking tradition, or at least trying to not break tradition. So, welcome to, man, I don't even know what episode this is anymore. I guess that's a good thing I know what pillar it is. This is pillar five. We have reached the end of my five pillars of being Catholic, but having a Zen mind. And if anyone has not heard any of the other ones up till this point, I'll go ahead and give a brief recap of them. First pillar is meditation. Not in a strict Buddhist or Hindu sense of meditation. Nothing like yoga. We're not supposed to do yoga. That is a no-no. <laughs> um, but meditation on Christ. Filling our hearts and our minds with Christ. That is a simple summary. And we'll come back around to that in a future episode when I go, when I go over specific kinds of uh, Catholic meditative practices that we can we can do. Uh, things like the rosary and uh, actually one I'll get into here later um, as well. Uh, but that's the first pillar is meditation, Christian meditation, Catholic meditation. Uh, the second is uh, Zen Mind. Um, and I'll be going over other parallels of this particular pillar in Catholic tradition in future episodes. This is probably my favorite of the pillars, is the Zen Mind. And so it's the one I will probably research in Catholic sources uh, the most. So, <clears throat> But it basically is, it, uh, simply put, it is what it is by the grace of God. If you need clarification on that, <laughs> you can, uh, well, I have an episode all over Pillar 2, so I encourage you to go check out that episode after you're done listening to this one. Um, then you have Pillar 3, which was Original Sin, and how that creates suffering in the world. That is the, um, the point at which suffering and all this other sorts of stuff and what we're going to go over today, death, uh, stuff like that. That's the point at which it all came into the world, the uh, emergence points, not the, not, not the uh, breaking point, the vanishing point. But that's the emergence point, I guess, is what I could call it. It's where it all emerges from, is from that original sin, which uh, in, in that episode we covered that it was pride. Uh... And then we move on to pillar four, which is suffering itself, and how we use that. We use uh, suffering itself to create offerings up to our Lord. Uh, and, you know, this also comes along with uh, denial, self-denial, uh, denying thyself, and detachment, detachment from earthly goods. Uh, and then last but not least is the reason we're here, <laughs> which is uh, Pillar 5, death. And I have written here, rebirth into a heavenly paradise. And I have it written like that for a specific reason. And we will go over uh, all of this 
here, but I want to read what I have written down for Pillar 5 on my sheet here. It says, There is no death to Zen Catholics. Jesus conquered death on the cross. There is no fear of what's to come. Or fear of losing what life we have. For our life is in Jesus, and through his conquering of death, we hold that in death we are reborn into new life with him in heaven. Not so dissimilar from the rebirth of Buddhist teachings, but the rebirth in Zen Catholicism is a rebirth in Christ in heaven as opposed to a reincarnation on earth as a new person, or in some cases, uh, as I covered in, all the way back in the first episode, I think, uh, sometimes animals and insects and other things like that. Um, which, that is not specifically the type of um, rebirth that Zen actually uh, partakes in that's the classic buddhist sense of reincarnation is that when you die your soul is reincarnated um for zen however it's a little bit different but we're going to get into all that here in a little bit at first i just want to read you the definition of reincarnation. I have it here in front of me and this is this is from Wikipedia but it it gives a short um I guess you could say background and explanation of uh reincarnation. It says here reincarnation is the name of the idea that people are born again in another body after they die and this cycle continues over many lifetimes. Rebirth, or transmigration, quoted, is the preferred term for those believers who do not believe in eternal souls. That's a key point there. See, as Christians and as Catholics, we believe in eternal souls. So, um, but yes, rebirth, or transmigration, is the preferred term for those who be believers who do not believe in eternal souls. Many Hindus... Celtic pagans, Buddhists, and people who follow some African religions believe in reincarnation or rebirth slash transmigration. Carnate means of flesh, and reincarnate means to re-enter the flesh. Um, this is why we... Uh, say that we have a uh, incarnate uh, religion because um, incarnate means of the flesh carnate means of the flesh incarnate of the flesh if we believe Jesus to be incarnate he, we believe he is God of flesh if we believe he is God incarnate he is of the flesh he is God in the flesh 
Um, anyways, reading uh, reading further, uh, Hindus believe in reincarnation, the process where the soul repeatedly takes on a physical body through being born on Earth. Ancient scriptures of Hinduism, starting around 700 BC, teach that the soul or immortal self takes birth time and time again. The soul survives and continues its long journey until it is one with God. Not the, uh, not, not the same God, <laughs> obviously. obviously. Um, Hindus believe that the soul never dies, but inhabits one body after another during its evolutionary journey, guided by karma, which we talked some in a previous episode, and we'll talk a little bit more about today, just briefly, though. Uh, <clears throat> karma is the sum of one's actions and the force that determines one's next reincarnation. The soul evolves from immaturity to spiritual illumination. Therefore, each reincarnating soul chooses a home and a family which can best fulfill its next step of learning and maturation. Each life on earth is similar to a class in school. Matura- m- uh, maturation or a maturing of the soul on earth means fulfilling its worldly desires, which can only be experienced through a body. At death, the soul leaves the physical body, but the soul does not die. It lives on in a subtle body called the astral body. The astral body exists in a non-physical dimension called the astral plane. Here the soul continues to have experiences until it is born again in another physical body as a baby. After many lifetimes of following Dharma, or uh, the right way of living, The soul is fully matured in love, wisdom, and knowledge of, quote-unquote, God. There is no longer a need for physical birth, for all lessons have been learned, all karmas fulfilled. When all desires has vanished, the person will not be born again anymore. So there is an end to reincarnation. Um, <clears throat> and that's on, that's just the Wikipedia definition of reincarnation. Uh, I believe that is a, a good description of what reincarnation is from the Hindu sense of things. Um, and I know we're not here to talk about Hinduism, we're here to talk about Zen, and uh, more importantly, talk about Catholicism. Uh, but to understand reincarnation, you, you, you first have to understand uh, the Hindu belief of reincarnation, because uh, from Buddhism or Hindu, uh, B- Buddhism came from Hinduism. Uh, so Buddhists, uh, more the mainline Buddhists, not Zen, but the Buddhists, in a general sense all still subscribe to a Hindu sense of reincarnation. Although, it's a little bit, uh, maybe a a tiny bit, a tinge different. Um, 
Zen Buddhists don't necessarily believe in that kind of reincarnation or rebirth. It's more accurate to call it rebirth. Um, so we're going to go to The Way of Zen by Alan Watts. We have uh, what he, he calls uh, the round of birth and death from Hinduism and Buddhism, which is uh, comes from grasping or trying to control life, pure self-frustration, and the pattern of life which follows is the circle, which in Hinduism and Buddhism is called samsara, or the round of birth and death. So, he goes on to state that the active principle of the round, samsara, is known as karma, is the active principle, karma or conditioned action. Action, that is, arising from a motive and seeking a result, the type of action, which always requires the necess necessity for further action. Man is involved in karma when he interferes with the world in such a way that he is compelled to go on interfering. When the solution of a problem creates still more problems to be solved, when the control of one thing creates the need to control several others. Karma is thus the fate of everyone who tries to be God. He lays a trap for the world in which he himself gets caught. Many Buddhists understand the round of birth and death, quite literally, as a process of reincarnation, wherein the karma, which shapes the individual, does so again and again in life after life until through insight and awakening it is laid to rest but in zen and in other schools of the mahayana it is often taken in a more figurative way is that the process of rebirth is from moment to moment so that one is being reborn so long as one identifies himself with a continuing ego which reincarnates itself afresh at each moment of time thus the validity and interest of the doctrine does not require acceptance of a special theory of survival its importance is rather that it exemplifies the whole problem of action in vicious circles and its resolution. And in this respect, Buddhist philosophy should have a special interest for students of communication, theory, cybernetics, logical philosophy, and similar matters. So, he's basically saying that instead of what we just read as the mainline form of reincarnation that in Zen Buddhism they have a whole different take on rebirth it's a little bit more figurative they believe that they're constantly being reborn into each and every new moment now it's very interesting it's very profound and these, these are the kind of things that drew me to studying more about Zen. Uh, and, and you know, it, it's just 
really interesting, really cool stuff to read about. I mean, just thinking about the fact that every single moment is a new rebirth. I mean, we talked in previous episodes about how Zen focuses on being one with the present moment. And so if you're being one with each new present moment, it, you, you, you're something entirely new. And you're constantly being reborn um, into the new next moment that's happening, the, the, the present. Uh, and I mean, it's, it's th- for them, it's an escape from the whole system of karma itself, the whole grasping and all that. Um, And here we have, uh, from Zen Catholicism, Dom Graham has a little something to say about grasping. Uh, we are, he says here, page 64, he says, We are faced once more with the root of the trouble, the restless craving for or grasping at something we want or fear to lose. The object of this craving may be tangible, like sensual pleasure, wealth or material security, or such intangibles as honors, prestige, power, or even some spiritual ideal that we have formulated for ourselves. We are apt to cling to what gratifies or enhances the conscious ego, heedless of the still small voice of our true self, prompting us to stand aside, relax, and let go, being unwilling or unable so we persuade others to let go. We hold on, become attached, and so ever more deeply involved in the unending round of karma described in the New Testament by the formula in Galatians 6-7, Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Of all life's harsh facts, here is perhaps the harshest, that the feelings and emotions which are part of our being through which we gain so much joy, are precisely what entangle us, unless we can find a way out in an endless sequence of trouble, frustration, and suffering. This is, this was the situation faced in all its painful reality by Gautama Buddha. It is a situation as the masters of the spiritual life concur from which there is only one path of release. What, then, is the holy truth of the stopping of ill? It is the complete stopping of that craving, the withdrawal from it, the renouncing of it, throwing it back, liberation from it, non-attachment to it. More summarily, and in a somewhat different context, the message of Christianity is the same. Whosoever shall seek to save his life shall lose it, and whosoever shall lose it shall preserve it. We may attempt to analyze a little more closely what is involved. Essentially, our inner distress is caused by the tension between the two apparently conflicting psychological entities within us, which have been labeled, not very satisfactorily, the true self and the conscious ego. 
corresponding respectively, again by a rough verbal approximation, to the self as subject, or the I, and the self as the object, the me. These, in reality, are not two, but they're one. We cannot, however, realize both of them as one until we attain enlightenment, which, in uh, Christian terminology, is the actual experience of the truth that the man who unites himself to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Whosoever shall seek to save his life shall lose it, and whosoever shall lose it shall preserve it. Luke chapter 17, verse 33. That right there is what we were talking about in being reborn into each new present moment and separating yourself from the whole idea of that, car- that cycle of karmic, psychic, <laughs> karmic cycle. The round of birth and death, samsara, grasping, attachment to things. He's, he's saying right here, find a way out of this endless sequence of trouble. He says there's only one path of release. And he says it is the complete stopping of that craving, the withdrawal from it. And he says, whosoever... He quotes Luke, and he says, Whosoever shall seek to save his life shall lose it, and whosoever shall lose it shall preserve it. He's saying that in Christian, in that that sense of a Christian, uh, in that verse, Whosoever shall lose his life, he's saying that's the same thing as being reborn in every moment in Zen. Uh... And he's not saying it's the exact same thing, but he's saying it's the uh, prox, uh, not the not the exact, but the um, somewhat approximate, somewhat approximation of what that can be from a Christian standpoint. Um, but a liberation from the samsara, from the round of birth and death, from karma, is achieved by nirvana. And nirvana. Uh, here we have on page 50 it says more popularly and literally understood nirvana is the disappearance of the being or the individual from the round of incarnations not into a state of annihilation but simply into a state of escaping definition and thus immeasurable and infinite. To attain nirvana is also to attain Buddhahood, awakening. But this is not attainment in any ordinary sense because no acquisition and no motivation are required are involved. It is impossible to desire nirvana or to intend to reach it. For anything desirable or conceivable as an object of action is by definition not nirvana. Um, Catholics should recognize this speak or this kind of language as the way that we 
actually uh that is how we define god with with that kind of language undefinable um the minute you define it as something that's not it uh so that that's just kind of something that should give catholics kind of a like a little bit of a a red flag to be like what oh well, not necessarily a red flag but a red flag because one of we talked about original sin a little while ago when i went over the pillars and how the original sin was pride pride the original sin of lucifer of satan why he fell why he was cast out why adam fell why eve fell was because pride they believed that they could obtain the same nature and status as god and there's plenty of people who will tell you the same exact thing, but they might not put it exactly like that. Uh, but say the exact same thing. Obtaining the nature of God is the original sin. Or being prideful enough to think you can is the original sin. So that's not our goal here. Um, but we're going to read uh, right here on page 72 of Zen Catholicism, where he says, However, this may be Catholicism and Zen agree on two essential points. First, the way of escape from what the church calls concupiscence, that is, disordered desire for anything whatever, not merely sensuous enjoyment, and the Buddhist tradition describes as craving or grasping, cannot be had by the ego's conscious efforts to find release. It depends on the ego's rebirth as the true self under God's direct illumination. Secondly, this rebirth or change of heart, though it cannot be achieved by the ego, nevertheless demands that the ego fulfill an inner task. We have by constant watchfulness to correspond with the movement of God's grace, ever striving to bring our true self into being. Corresponding with grace depends on keeping the eye of our mind according to its natural powers and is further enlightened by faith open and clear. In the resulting state of clarity, the conscious ego will imperceptibly recede into the background, becoming aware of what it is already, the true self. Um, I guess you could say the, the true self from a Zen Catholic standpoint, is kind of how you are meant to be um, by God, how God made you. Um, and uh, I just want to go back and read here earlier. When we went over the Four Noble Truths with my cousin when he was guesting with us, which will be back here soon, uh, when we were when he was a guest and we went over the Four Noble Truths, I read here uh, in the section about the Four Noble Truths in Zen Catholicism by Dom Graham. 
about where he talks about there is a overtone, and we talked about some of this earlier. Um, he talks about how there's a overtone of transmigration within Zen, and that this can't, we can't do that. Uh, but here's here's what he writes. He says, It would be presumptuous to remark upon the depth of the insight revealed in these statements. He's talking about the Four Noble Truths. They have no parallel that I know of in the religious literature of the West. Not surprisingly, systematic meditation on the Four Holy Truths, or the Four uh, Noble Truths, as on the basic facts of life, is Buddhism's central task. From the Christian, as indeed from the Buddhist point of view, they call for comment and elucidation. The underlying thought is different from that which preoccupied the authors of the Catholic creeds. There is no reference to God. But neither do the Four Holy Truths contain any hint, and this should be noted, of atheism. It seems that there is only one topic on which we need momentarily pause at this stage, having regard to our present undertaking, which is to concentrate attention on those features of Buddhism and its particular development in Zen that serve to illuminate and are compatible with traditional Catholic spirituality. There is a reference to rebirth, with its overtones of the Hindu doctrine of transmigration, though even this may be passed over. There is a comment that's very illuminating that everyone should keep in mind. Um, the Lord is the only transmigrator. So, as he goes on there and he's talking, he starts saying that, you know, with, with the overtones that we have from what we read earlier in the Hindu do doctrine of transmigration and the rebirth, these aren't Catholic church teachings. Uh, and he says that that should give us pause when looking at Zen. Because if there's an overtone of that, then we have to really understand what they're talking about when they talk about rebirth. And as we went over in Alan Watts' book, uh, when they talk about you know, reincarnation and Zen, or rebirth and Zen, it's a moment-to-moment -moment type of rebirth. It's still founded, it's still based upon the same cycle of karma, so to speak. But being one with the present moment, you're reborn every every new moment. You know, um, this is still not something I think Catholics should uh, engage in. Uh, there's only one rebirth. That's rebirth in Christ. Um, I guess you could say in baptism, rebirth and baptism. We don't have a rebirth in uh, our tradition as far as death goes. We have one life, one death. <laughs> um, I want to move on 
from Alan Watts and Dom Graham and their two books. And I feel that we've we've done a pretty good job of going over reincarnation from the Zen and from the traditional standpoint of what it is. Uh, but I want to read here from an article from the Catholic News Agency and uh, I will put this up on my Facebook page and I'll tell you more about all of that later on uh, at the end of the episode. But I'm going to read this article, uh, ex- excerpts from this article here from CatholicNewsAgency.com. And the article is Why Christians Believe in Resurrection, Not Reincarnation. Uh, And it says here, the belief in the resurrection of one's physical body at the end of time is central to Christian theology and finds its basis in the resurrection of Christ, who rose in body and soul three days after his passion and death. uh, But according to a 2018 Pew survey, 29% of Christians in the U.S., hold the New Age belief of reincarnation. The belief that when one's body dies, one's soul lives on in a new and different body, unrelated to the first. The the percentage of Catholics in the U.S. who said they believe in reincarnation was even higher, 36%, just shy of the 38% of religiously unaffiliated people who said they believe the same. However, according to Catholic teaching, belief in anything other than the resurrection of the body is completely incompatible with a Christian theology and anthropology of the human person. Human person. Okay, here. What does, what does belief in resurrection mean for Christians? According to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, the resurrection of the flesh, the literal formulation of the Apostles' Creed, means not only that the immortal soul will live on after death, but that even our mortal body will come to life again. Belief in the resurrection of the dead has been an essential element of Christian faith from its beginning. So here we have, why Christians should reject reincarnation. The two main reasons that a Christian should reject reincarnation is that it It is opposed to the way of salvation offered by Christ, and because it goes against the nature of the human person. It contradicts the picture of salvation that we have in the New Testament, where our participation in Christ's resurrection is what salvation is all about. And it gives us quite a different picture of what it is to be a human being, a disembodied self that isn't related to any particular time. Christianity takes very seriously that we are embodied beings, and any notion of reincarnation means that the real self only has a kind of accidental connection to any specific body. Because you'll go on to another body, and another body, and another body, and bodiliness ends. Ends up being kind of at best side point about who you are. There's very little formal Catholic dogma about the resurrection details, but one that there is, is that we will rise in the same body we have now. There's no official definition of what same is here, and there's a big transformation. But nevertheless, it is official Catholic dogma that we will rise in the body we now have. 
so we're going to go and explore <laughs> basically a lot of what they just said there with some of my own sources and some of my own research into this particular topic. Uh, but there is one thing that I believe that he said that I found particular, particularly uh, important to understand why Zen reincarnation and rebirth is not compatible with Catholic or Christian uh, resurrection belief. Um, which I'd label the pillar as rebirth into a heavenly paradise. Uh, when in reality it's, it's a belief in the resurrection of the body. We'll get into that. Uh, but he says right here that uh, participation in Christ's resurrection is what salvation is all about. And that is the central difference between rebirth in the Zen sense and uh, the Catholic sense. Is that we shouldn't be looking to the present moment as what is saving us from this suffering that we are in. We should be looking to Christ and his cross and the reward that we have uh, promised us of a resurrection of the body, um, a glorified body, and all these things. Um, so that's, that's like I said, that's the Catholic News article, Catholic News uh, Agency article I read, um, Why Christians Believe in Resurrection, Not Reincarnation. So we're going to move on from there. Because this is going to take me a little while to read. I'm going to move on to good old St. Thomas Aquinas and the Summa Theologica. Uh, not quite sure exactly what part we're in. I think it's part three. Um, question 54. Book three, whatever you want to call it. Part three. Question 54. Of the quality of Christ rising again. And... Uh, so he's going over here. I'm not going to read the objections. I'm only going to read what he says in response, which is longer than the objections. But he says here, we have now to consider the quality of the rising Christ, which presents four points of inquiry. One, whether Christ had a true body after his resurrection. Two, whether he rose with his complete body. Three, whether his was a glorified body. And four, of the scars which showed in his body. So, he goes on to say here, after he had all of his objections against everything, about Christ not having all the body, or his body and everything, he says, in response, On the contrary, it is written, Luke 2437, that when Christ appeared to his disciples, they being troubled and frightened, supposed that they saw a spirit, as if he had not a true, but an imaginary body. But to remove their fears, he presently added, handle and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones, as you see me to have. Consequently, he had an imaginary, he had not an imaginary, but a true body. I answer, well, as you can see there, he uses that Bible verse to say, look, he's saying, 
I'm flesh, I'm physical, I'm here, I have a body, you know. He goes on, I answer that, as Damascene says, that is said to rise, which fell. But Christ's body fell by death, namely, inasmuch as the soul, which was its formal perfection, was separated from it. Hence, in order for it to be a true resurrection, it was necessary for the same body of Christ to be once more united with the same soul. And since the truth of the body's nature is from its form, it follows that Christ's body, after his resurrection, was a true body, and of the same nature as it was before. But had his been an imaginary body, then his resurrection would not have been true, but apparent. Christ's body, after his resurrection, not by miracle, but from its glorified condition, as some say, entered in among the disciples while the doors were shut, thus existing with another body in the same place. But whether a glorified body can have this from some hidden property, so as to be with another body at the same time in the same place, will be discussed later. When the common resurrection will be dealt with. For the present, let it suffice to say that it was not from any property within the body, but by virtue of the Godhead, united to it, that this body, although a true one, entered in among the disciples while the doors were shut. Accordingly, Augustine says in a sermon for Easter that some men argue in this fashion. If it were a body, if what rose from the sepulchre were what hung upon the tree, how could it enter through closed doors? And when he answers, if you understand how, it is no miracle. Where reason fails, faith abounds. And, he says, closed doors were no obstacle to the substance of a body wherein was the Godhead. For truly, he could enter in by doors not open, in whose birth his mother's virginity remained inviolate. And Gregory says the same in a homily for the octave of Easter. So in that whole first objection right there, he's going through and he's talking about um, how Christ for well that was the paragraph before when he says and I answer that as Damascene says. He's talking about how Christ being who he was he has to reunite with his body for his resurrection to um, be valid, <laughs> so to speak. Um, and then in that right there, that was his reply to objection one. He's stating that uh, his body, the properties of it are the properties of a godhead. This is why he has such a glorified body after his uh, his death when he rises um, and then he makes these connection to Mary his mother how he can open doors closed and how he was born of a virgin makes the connection um, he goes on 
As stated above, Christ rose to the immortal life of glory, but such is the disposition of a glorified body that it is spiritual, subject to the Spirit. As the Apostle says, or Paul, Now in order for the body to be entirely subject to the Spirit, it is necessary for the body's every action to be subject to the will of the Spirit. Again, that an object be seen is due to the action of the visible object upon the sight, as the philosopher shows Aristotle. Consequently, whoever has a glorified body has it in his power to be seen when he so wishes, and not to be seen when he does not wish it. Moreover, Christ had this not only from the condition of his glorified body, but also from the power of his Godhead, by which power it may happen that even bodies not glorified are miraculously unseen, as was by a miracle bestowed on the blessed Bartholomew, that if he wished he could be seen, and not be seen if he did not wish. Christ, then, is said to have vanished from the eyes of the disciples, not as though he were corrupted or dissolved into invisible elements, but because he ceased of his own will to be seen by them, either while he was present or while he was departing by the gift of agility. We'll talk about what he says there about the gift of agility later, and about how the glorified bodies have different gifts, four gifts, as a matter of fact, uh, impassibility, brightness, agility, and subtlety. We'll talk about all those later. Um, but he's basically talking about here how uh, the glorified body has certain powers, like I said, gifts. Um, but Christ, he also had these powers because he was his nature as Godhead. Um, so he could have done these things without a glorified body. Uh, and he gives an example of uh, Bartholomew. He goes on here, and he says, as Severianus says in a sermon for Easter, let no one suppose that Christ changed his features at the resurrection. This is to be understood of the outline of his members. Since there was nothing out of keeping or deformed in the body of Christ, which was conceived of the Holy Ghost, that had to be righted at the resurrection. Nevertheless, he received the glory of clarity in the resurrection. Accordingly, the same writer adds, but the semblance is changed when, ceasing to be mortal, it becomes immortal, so that it acquired the glory of countenance, without losing the substance of the countenance. Yet he did not come to those disciples in glorified appearance, but, as it lay in his power for his body to be seen or not, so it was within his power to present to the eyes of the beholders his form either glorified or not glorified or partly glorified, or partly not, or in any fashion whatsoever. Still, it requires but a slight difference for anyone to seem to appear another shape. So, he's basically going and saying here that you know, Christ, he, uh, uh, he had the ability to show them um, 
that. He had the ability to change his appearance if he wanted. He could be anything. <laughs> but he didn't. And it's an example. I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one reaches the Father except through me. He's, his, his whole life is exemplary. We are meant to follow it. Would it make sense then that his resurrection is also exemplary? So in, in this... And the replies to these objections of the quality of the rising, of Christ rising again in his, his body, he's laying forth the example of what will have glorified body and all these things. Um, right here we have a small snippet. Uh where he says he will reform the body of our lowness made like to the body of his glory I answer that Christ's was a glorified body in his resurrection and this is evident from three reasons first of all because his resurrection was the exemplar and the cause of ours as is stated in the in 1 Corinthians 15:43 but in the resurrection of the saints will have glorified bodies, as is written in the same place. It is sown in dishonor, it shall rise in glory. Hence, since the cause is mightier than the effect, and the exemplar than the exemplet, much more glorious, then was the body of Christ in his resurrection. He's saying, right, exactly what I just said, exemplar than the exemplet. Right. He's the exemplar. We are to follow his example. He's exemplary. Um, there it is right there. <laughs> so, we'll move on from St. Thomas. He, I know he's boring and I know you're all asleep, but it's time to wake up. We're going to move on. You don't want to sleep. We're on pillar five, death, rebirth into a heavenly paradise, right? I'm going to move on and read here from Liguori, and I'm going to dive into a little bit more of a difference here uh, about how Catholics and Christians, we believe in one life and one death. But this book here that I'm moving to is by St. Alphonsus Liguori, another great doctor of the church, along with St. Thomas Aquinas, but this is the book Death, Judgment, Heaven, Hell meditation on the last four things which those are the last four things death judgment heaven and hell and here meditation three the certainty of death he states we must die how awful is the decree we must die the sentence is passed it is appointed for all men once to die Meditation 9, he actually reads a little bit more, or he writes down a little bit more of the verse, and he says, It is appointed unto men once to die. And after this, the judgment. And that is from Hebrews 9.27. And I got my Dewey Rames here. 
And I'll read that out of the Dewey Rames. And it says, And as it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment. And like I was saying, Christ is the exemplary, is the example we follow. And it says here in verse 28, So also Christ was offered once to exhaust the sins of many. The second time he shall appear without sin to them that expect him unto salvation. Hebrews 9, 27 and 28. So, it is appointed unto all men to die once, and then after this they shall be judged. We will go over some more of that judgment later on. So, how awful is that decree? <laughs> so when, when Liguria says the sentence is passed, He's talking about original sin. He's talking about when Adam and Eve ate that fruit and God gave his judgment, his, his just judgment. Uh, and they were sentenced to banishment and to die. Um, so therefore, since we all inherited the original sin from our uh, first parents, our fallen parents, uh, then therefore we all inherited their sentence. So it is appointed for all men once to die. But the good news is that as Catholics and Christians too, we all believe in Jesus, and that's significant because Jesus, um, well, because of him, he took away original sin, and he did that through his death. And he took original sin away through, like I said, the cross. But, I mean, baptism is one of the main ways that we combat original sin. Uh, but moving on now, uh, we'll go ahead and explore exactly why uh, we look to Jesus as um, the ex example that we should follow uh, when it comes to death, you know, uh, why exactly he's a big deal. Why is Christ such a big deal in death and resurrection and all this? From a Zen Catholic standpoint, from any Catholic standpoint, from any Christian standpoint, he conquered death. We should not worry about death. He conquered it. He overcame death. Let me give you some scriptural examples. Um, Alright, so this is the story of Jesus resurrecting a young girl. Um, I forgot what age they say that she is. Twelve? Yeah, she was twelve years. Um, and this, hap this happens in Mark chapter 5. And this is right after he'd been casting demons out of a man... Uh, there is a woman that says here that she was under blood, an issue of blood for 12 years, and she uh, followed him and his disciples in the crowd, and she reached out and touched him, and because of he, he told her, because of your faith you have been healed. Uh, um, but he was on his way to uh, Jairus' house, and his daughter had 
uh, was sick. And so he was bringing Jesus to his daughter to heal him. And while on his way there, uh, one of Jairus' servants came to Jesus and said, Your daughter is dead. And Jesus said, I will change that. So here's the story here. While he was yet speaking, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house, that would be Jairus, saying, Thy daughter is dead. Why dost thou trouble the master any further? But Jesus, having heard the word that was spoken, saith to the ruler of the synagogue, Fear not, only believe. And he admitted not any man to follow him, but Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they come to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. And he seeth a tumult, and people weeping and wailing much. And going in, he saith to them, Why make you this ado, and weep? The damsel is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn. But he, having put them all out, taketh the father and mother of the damsel, and them that were with him, and entereth in where the damsel was lying. And taking the damsel by the hand, he saith to her, Talith Akubi, which is being interpreted, Damsel, I say to thee, arise. And immediately the damsel rose up and walked. And she was twelve years old. And they were astonished with a great astonishment. And he charged them strictly that no man should know it, and commanded that something should be given her to eat. So, as I stated, that, that there is the fir first example, um, actually it's the second example of Jesus having power over death. Uh, the first example was our intro. It's the story of Lazarus. John 11, verses 33 through, through 44. He says, Lazarus, come out. <laughs> and he comes out, bound by the bandages they buried him in. And he tells them, untie him, let him go. And I'm sure, just like this young girl, the first thing Lazarus wanted was some food. I bet you being dead works up an appetite. <laughs> and I mean, those are just, those are examples of him having power over death while he was alive. Imagine the power he has over death from death's own domain. He went and took it straight to death in his crucifixion. But in the resurrection story of Jesus, I mean, he... First of all, where was he in the tomb? The stone? rolled away. He's gone. His body disappeared entirely. It didn't just dissolve into dust as most mortal bodies do. 
completely gone. It was fully risen body. His body. Exactly like it was on earth. While some of his disciples are walking down, he shows himself to them, but he hides himself. He makes it so they can't recognize him. And eventually they eat with him. And when he blesses the bread and hands it to him, they suddenly recognize him. And which was funny because on their traveling, he was telling all of them all about all the scriptures and what they meant with his death and resurrection. Then he appeared to them all inside a room where the doors were closed, which is what St. Thomas Aquinas was talking about in the Summa. He told them, he said, Peace be with you. Don't be afraid. He said, It's me. You know, look. Look at my hands and feet. I got, I got holes in my hands, holes in my feet. There's a hole in my side. You see all the lash marks on my back. You know, then he appeared to them at the side of a of 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 a sea. Told them to cast out their net and catch fish. And again, here he was uh, hidden from them. He hid. He hid the recognition. He hid their recognition of him from themselves. It wasn't until they got close to the shore, and uh, then. The veil was lifted and they saw who it was and Peter rush rushing up. This is when Peter uh, was asked three times, do you love me? And he said, yes, Lord, you know I love you. He was told, feed my sheep. Those stories in the gospel of Jesus' resurrection, for one, they, they lay out why we as Catholics believe in a resurrection because we saw our Lord you know we saw our Lord resurrected that's where our, our belief stems from not only that they show why we have faith in our Lord because it shows his power over death not only while he was alive but in death as well he has power over death and if he has power over death then we should turn to him in death. Like I said, he, he has power over death. We don't have to be afraid. Zen Catholics, Catholics with Zen minds, we don't, we're not afraid of death. We know that death leads to something greater. This could be what you, what, I guess you could say uh, St. Alphonsus Liguori in his book Death Judgment, Heaven, Hell, Meditation on the Last Four Things he talks about the happy death of the just right, because we talk about judgments and stuff we talk about being having the, the last judgment right the happy death this is why Zen Catholics or Zen Catholics with the Zen mind do not fear death because we strive to live just in a state of grace. And to the just man, 
This is from the book, from Liguori. To the just man, death is not a punishment, but a reward. It is not dreaded by him, but desired. How can it be dreadful to him if it is to terminate all his pains, afflictions, and conflicts, and all danger of losing God? Those words depart, Christian soul, out of this world, which strike such terror into the soul of the sinner, fill the soul that loves God with joy. The just man is not afflicted at leaving the good things of this world, because God has always been his only good, not at leaving honors, because he has always regarded them as smoke, not at being separated from his friends and relatives, because he has always loved them in God and for God. Hence, as in life he frequently exclaimed, My God and my all, he now repeats the same in death, with ecstasies of delight, the time being at hand for him to return to his God, who made him, to love him, face to face, forever and ever, in heaven. So, that's St. Alphonsus Liguori's meditation on the happy death of the just. And that's just the first part of it. Uh, he has a few more parts, but I don't want to read all of them. Uh, well, they're not necessary for me to read. That sums it up pretty nicely. Uh, to a just man, death is not a punishment. It's a reward. Because we know that we will be judged. And if we lived justly, uh, according to the laws of our Lord, uh, we will have a great reward in heaven. So death of a just man is nothing to be sad or scared of. Uh, so w we, what we will do is we'll read a little bit more about resurrection, death, the Catholic belief of it. So right here we'll read from the fundamentals of Catholic dogma. This is the doctrine of the last things or of the consummation. Eschatology. Chapter 1. The eschatology of the individual human being. Part 1. The origin of death. In the present order of salvation, death is a punishment for sins. It goes on to say, The Council of Trent teaches in its decree on original sin that Adam became subject to sin by the transgression of the divine commandment, that God had previously threatened him with death, and that he transmitted death to the whole of mankind. Part 2. Universe, universality of Death All human beings subject to original sin are subject to the law of death. St. Paul bases the universi universality of death on the universality of original sin. It is, a, it is appointed to men once to die. Part 3. Significance of death. With the arrival of death, the possibility of merit or demerit and conversion ceases. Immediate after death, the particular judgment takes place. This is the, the section, section two, the particular judgment. Immediately after death, the particular judgment takes place, in which, by a divine sentence of judgment, the eternal fate of the deceased person 
is decided. The doctrine that there is a particular judgment for each soul immediately after death is not defined but is presupposed by the dogma that departed souls go forthwith, that is, immediately after death into heaven or into hell or into purgatory. The Union Councils of Lyons and of Florence declared that the souls of the just, free from all sin and punishment, are immediately assumed into heaven, and that the souls of those who die in mortal sin or with original sin only descend immediately into hell. So there is a judgment uh, where the just and the unjust are separated and sent to the according corresponding destinations. Section 3 we have heaven which is where the just go. Essential happiness of heaven. The souls of the just which in the moment of death are free from all guilt of sin and punishment for sin enter into heaven. Heaven is a place of place and condition of perfect supernatural happiness, which consists in the immediate vision of God in the and in the perfect love of God associated with it. Um, there's quite a bit more about heaven, but we'll move on to accidental blessedness of heaven. Uh, in it addition to the essential happiness of heaven, which springs from the immediate vision of God. There's also an accidental blessedness, which proceeds from the natural knowledge and love of created things. So here we'll read the um, about the properties of heaven. Uh, eternity, the happiness of heaven, lasts for all eternity. Uh, and then we have the next one, inequality of reward. The degree of perfection of the beatific vision granted to the just is proportioned to each one's merits. And it goes on to say, The Decretum Pro Gracias of the Union Council of Florence in 1439 declared, The souls of those who are completely just see clearly God himself, one and three, as he is though some more perfectly than others, according to the diversity of merits. The Council of Trent defined that the justified person merits an increase of the heavenly glory by good works. This is just saying that the, the more of a just person that you are, the more clearly you can see God. Uh, it moves on to section 4, to hell, the, rea the reality of hell. The souls of those who die in the condition of personal mortal sin enter hell. Hell is a place or state of eternal punishment inhabited by those rejected by God. Um, properties of hell, same almost as heaven. The punishment of hell lasts for all eternity. That one's the same. Punishment of the damned is proportioned to each one's guilt, just as in heaven. Uh, the proportion of your reward is by your merits. Uh, Purgatory, uh, the souls of the just, which in the moment of death are burdened with venial sins or temporal punishment due to sins, enter purgatory. This is not a dead Catholic belief. This is still 100% alive. Um, I'm just going to sum purgatory up. Purgatory is just that place where if you're not good enough to make it in the club, you get sent there for another trial run. <laughs> Um. I 
didn't necessarily mean you're sent to purgatory for another way around. Purgatory, actually, the, the root word of purgatory is uh, purge uh, or purify. Uh, kind of like you, you, you thrust iron into the fire to uh, purge its impurities, to purify it. So purgatory is. Uh, you don't get sent there for another round. It is, you get sent there to uh, purge out uh, your impurifications because uh, you're not pure enough to enter into heaven. Uh, th- that's what I meant by you get sent there for another trial run. It's not a trial run. That, that literally would be reincarnation. And that is, that is not exactly what I meant. I meant you get sent there to be purged, to be purified, to be cleansed of a punishment for any, you know, outstanding uh, venial sins or things like that. And uh, we'll move on to, you know, kind of what exactly all of that has to do with you know, what, what we're talking about. And how that plays into what we're talking about, does I mean, that's why reincarnation doesn't work with Catholic teaching. I mean, we can't have a heaven or hell with reincarnation. Reincarnation is the reward system. Heaven or hell is the reward system. They're, they're two different reward systems. They don't stack up. You can't use one in line with the other, even in a Zen sense. Because you're not focused on Christ. We'll move on here to, because uh, uh, since we're talking about judgment, we'll move on into another part of Ligori's book where he says, this is on the soul's appearance at the tribunal of God. He says, when criminals are presented before their judges, though they fear and tremble, yet flatter themselves that either their crimes will not be proved against them or that their judges will remit in part the punishments which they have deserved. How great will be the honor of a guilty soul when presented before Jesus Christ, from whom nothing will be hidden, and who will judge it with the utmost severity. I am the judge and the witness. Will he then say, I am your judge, and I am witness of all the witness of all the offenses you have committed against me? Then you will be judged accordingly. <laughs> um so, make sure your nose is clean, so to speak. <laughs> In a manner of speaking. <laughs> I just wanted to read that there out of Ligori's book, because he, he has a good way of just summarizing what we believe is going to happen there. Uh, so, we believe in a resurrection of the body as Catholics. So we're going to move on forward and start reading a little bit more about the resurrection of the body. Page 516, section 7, the resurrection of the dead. Uh, All the dead will rise again on the last day with, with their bodies. In the Apostles' Creed, we profess, I believe, in the resurrection of the flesh. The, uh, what's known as the Athanasian Creed, I'm not going to try and pronounce the Latin, stresses the generality of the resurrection. At his coming, all men are to rise again with their bodies. Uh, 
right here. Uh, next part, part two. The body before and after the resurrection, the dead will rise again with the same bodies, numerically, that they had on earth. Composition of the body after its resurrection. The bodies of the just will be remodeled and transfigured to the pattern of the risen Christ. St. Paul teaches Jesus Christ will transform our lowly body to conform to his glorified body by the power that also enables him to subdue, subdue all things unto himself. Philippians 3.21 It is shown in corruption, it shall rise in incorruption. It is shown in dishonor, it shall rise in glory. It is shown in weakness, it shall rise in power. It is shown a natural body, it shall rise a spiritual body. Corinthians fifteen forty two through forty four. We'll move on here to part B. The bodies of the godless will rise again in incorruption and immortality, but they will not be transfigured. Incorruptibility and immortality form an indispensable precondition for the eternal punishment of the body in hell. Immortality excludes the change of matter and function, functions associated with the change of matter, but not the capacity to suffer. So they're just saying there that, uh, basically, that was laying out, you know, we, we will get our bodies, they will be the same bodies, uh, there's no changing of, of the necessary matter that consists of our bodies. When, when they're resurrected and then we will either be the, the just will be the re remodeled to be like like Christ and the, in the pattern of Christ and the damned will be immortal so that they may receive their punishment and that just because they're immortal and that there is no change of the matter that consists of their body does not mean it changes their capacity to suffer so if you're not just you'll still be immortal in in hell but it'll be an immortal suffering so we're going to move on now we're going to talk about, uh, oh, before we do, let's come back to talk about Mr. St. Alphonsus Liguori, and he has something to say about the thought of eternis, thought of eternity. He says, St. Augustine called the thought of eternity the great thought, magna cogitatio. This thought has brought the saints to count all the treasures and greatness of this life as nothing more than straw, dust, smoke, and refuse. This thought has sent many anchorets to hide themselves in deserts and caves, and so many noble youths and even kings and emperors to shut themselves up in cloisters. This thought has given courage to so many martyrs to endure the torture of piercing nails and heated irons and even being burnt in fire. So back to what we were saying about the immortality and the eternity of heaven and hell and 
immortality of the, the bodies and the souls that will go to both. Um, you know, this it's a big staple in the teachings of Catholic and Christian dogma. Um, in Algori here, talking about how St. Augustine used to call that eternity the great thought, how that's one thing everybody wants, and how that thought would give people to justify so many things to so many peoples, like, for example, the martyrs and their death. Uh, he goes on here to talk about the house of the eternity later on, and he says, A man shall go to the house of his eternity. We err in calling this our habitation in which we now dwell. We talk about the earth in our physical form. Uh, the habitation of our body in a little while will be a grave, in which it must rest until the day of judgment. And the habitation of the soul will be either paradise or hell, according as it has deserved and there it will continue through all eternity. So, there all gory is just saying what we read there in Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma, that you'll be judged accordingly, and no matter which way you go, it's it's forever, baby. It's for eternity. <laughs> There's no stopping it. So, let's move on to Trent here. Uh, the, the Council of Trent got a, a few things to read here, and uh, I'm, I'm going to be wrapping this up soon to Trent, and then actually, uh, I think one more thing I want to go over afterwards, but uh, we'll, we'll start here. Um, this is Article 11 of the Council of Trent. This is the, uh, the Baronius uh, Press Edition, and it, uh, it's on page 1. And this is on the resurrection of the body. And uh, I'm just going to read this whole section here. So, that in this article, the resurrection of mankind is called the resurrection of the body, is a circumstance which deserves special attention. It was not, indeed, so named without a reason, for the apostles intended thus to convey a necessary truth the immortality of the soul. Lest anyone, despite the fact that many passages of Scripture plainly teach that the soul is immortal, might imagine that it dies with the body and that both are to be restored to life, the creed speaks only of the resurrection of the body. So right there is actually uh, a, a pretty good sta statement against saying, uh, well, rebirth reincarnation no if you profess the creed you don't believe in it um sorry <laughs> um so uh we'll move on here and this the in they give an argument uh drawn out for uh drawn from reason about the uh rebirth uh all we believe is resurrection. We don't believe in the rebirth. We don't believe in reincarnation. He says, 
they say the reasons also adduced by ecclesiastical writers seem well calculated to establish this truth. In the first place, as the soul is immortal and has, as part of man, a natural propensity to be united to the body, its perpetual separation from it must be considered as unnatural. But, as that which is contrary to nature and in a state of violence cannot be permanent, it appears fitting that the soul should be reunited to the body, and consequently that the body should rise again. This argument our Savior himself employed when in his disputation of the Sadducees he deduced the resurrection of the body from the immortal soul. And that is in Matthew uh, chapter 22, verse 23 through 33. Um, we'll move on here to the next part of Trent, where they talk about how all shall rise, and up here it says, St. Paul, in Corinthians, he's, he writes that, in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Good and bad, then, without distinction, shall all rise from the dead, although the condition of all will not be the same. Those who have done good shall rise to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of of judgment. Alright, so in Trent, moving on, we'll go to the body shall rise substantially the same. But, as it is of vital importance to be fully convinced that the identical body, which belongs to each one of us during life, shall, though corrupt and dissolved into its original dust, be raised up again to life. So it here in Trent, it's telling us, you know, we'll get our body back. Just like it told us in the fundamentals of Catholic dogma. Just like we've been talking about mostly this whole time. So we'll get our exact same body back in, in the resurrection. But, it does say here, uh, a little farther down, that the condition of the risen body shall be different. Um... See, it now remains for the faithful to understand how the body, when raised from the dead, although substantially the same body that had been dead, shall be vastly different and changed into its condition. To omit other points, this is about mortality. To omit other points, the chief difference between the state of all bodies, when risen from the dead, and what they had previously been is that before the resurrection, they were subject to disillusion. But when reanimated, they shall all, without distinction of good and bad, be invested with immortality. This admirable restoration of nature, as the scriptures testify, is the result of the glorious victory of Christ over death. For it is written, He shall cast death down headlong forever. So, there you have it. Trent affirming what we've been, what we read in the fundamentals of Catholic dogma, what Gory's been saying, what, uh, what 
Aquinas said, you know, and talking about Jesus being our example of glorified body, of getting our body back. Uh, Trent, the, the Council of Trent, uh, goes on to s- talk about uh, the qualities of a glorified body. And this is what we talked about earlier when I mentioned, uh, when I was reading uh, in Thomas Aquinas and he spoke about his being able to vanish maybe due to his agility, which is one of the four qualities of a glorified body. So I will read uh, a briefly here about each one of those and says the qualities of a glorified body in addition to this the bodies uh, the bodies of the risen saints will be distinguished by certain transcendent endowments which will ennoble them far beyond their former condition among these endowments four are specially mentioned by the fathers which they infer from the doctrine of saint paul and which are called gifts. So these, they're saying that these aren't necessarily the only four of the qualities of a glorified body that we will receive, but these are the four that they know for certain as listed by St. Paul. The first one is impassibility. The first endowment or gift is impassibility, which shall place them beyond the reach of suffering anything disagreeable or of being affected by pain or inconvenience of any sort. Neither the piercing severity of cold, nor the glowing intensity of heat, nor the impetuosity of waters can hurt them. So that's that's impassibility. You're basically, you don't feel pain. No suffering. Uh, so brightness. We'll move on to the next one, which would be brightness. The next quality is brightness, by which the bodies of the saints shall shine like the sun, according to the words of our Lord recorded in the Gospel of St. Matthew, the just shall shine as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. To remove the possibility of doubt on the subject, he exemplifies this in his transfiguration. As I said, as I've said a few times now, he is the path we take. He is the example, the exemplar, the exemplary uh, uh, path. Uh, the transfiguration is a glimpse of what you could say we would receive it as brightness in a glorified body. Um, Our Lady of Fatima, the Lady of the Sun and the book of the uh, Apocalypse Revelation. You know, brightness. So moving on, the next quality of a glorified body would be agility. To the preceding quality is united that which is called agility. So they say that this is uh, united with brightness. By which... Uh, by which the body will be freed from the heaviness that now presses it down and will take on a capability of moving with the utmost ease and swiftness wherever the soul pleases. As St. Augustine teaches in his book on the city of God and St. Jerome on Isaiah. Hence these words of the Apostle, It is sown in weakness, it shall rise in power. So basically 
They're just saying agility will will be freed of this heaviness and weightiness that's on us. We'll be able to move so quickly. The agility is the uh, gift that Aquinas mentioned. The last one is subtility. Subtility. Another quality is that of subtility, which subjects the body to the dominion of the soul, so that the body shall be subject to the soul and ever ready to follow her desires. So those are f at least the four gifts laid out by St. Paul that are qualities of a glorified body. Subtle, subtility, agility, brightness, and impassibility. So you won't feel pain, you won't suffer, you'll bright, you'll glow, you'll be agile and quick, and your body shall be subject to your soul fully. It's a glorified body. Um, there's not much else to say <laughs> on most all of that. Uh, Trent, between Trent, between fundamentals of Catholic dogma, between St. Thomas, I think you all get the point. You all have picked up what I wanted to lay down that reincarnation wrong bad Catholics no no we can't do it the idea of a rebirth uh, not as bad but if you're focused on a rebirth in the present moment you're not focused on Christ and focusing on Christ is what we do so uh, we see our death um, as a rebirth with Christ into his kingdom um, until until we are reunited with our body in the resurrection. There is one practice uh, that I've mentioned multiple times in many different episodes that we do to help us remember all of this stuff. You know, we think about our glorified bodies. We think about the judgment. We think about death. We think about heaven and hell. We think about our own mortality. We, 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 we focus on the reward that is to come, and that's memento mori. And I've mentioned memento mori before, and how it is a phrase that means remember your mortality and, and all of that and so on and so forth. Um... I'm going to read uh, a little bit from the Memento Mori prayer book, which is Prayers on the Last Things. And as I mentioned when I introduced uh, St. Alphonsus Liguori's book, Death, Judgment, Heaven, and Hell, those are the last four things. Uh, and, he, and he actually um, is a proponent, St. Alphonsus Liguori, of Memento Mori, even if he doesn't call it by that name. Here he says the frequent thought of death. Men who are attached to this world endeavor to banish the thoughts of death from their minds, as though, by avoiding the remembrance of death, they could avoid death itself. But no. By banishing the thoughts of death from their minds, they expose themselves to greater danger of making an evil end. There is no alternative. Sooner or later, we must die. <clears throat> and what is still more, we can die but once, 
And if once we lost, we shall be lost forever. So, he's saying that if we don't constantly meditate and think about our death, we could be in, pro we could be in trouble. <laughs> we, we could be heading for, for bad waters, not so smooth sailing. We could come to an evil end because we will not have the perspective necessary, is what he's trying to say. The perspective necessary to realize that, oh, I'm about to uh, compromise my eternal salvation, and I'm about to achieve eternal damnation. There's a difference. We don't want damnation. We want salvation. As we just went over, the soul's eternal. And our judgment our punishment or our reward is eternal as well. So, but, so Memento Mori. I'll read here out of the, as I said, the Memento Mori prayer book for the prayers on the last things, uh, which I, I do recommend these books if, if, if you're interested in getting them, the Memento Mori books there's there's a lenten devotional there's a prayer book there's a notebook and a journal uh, i i got the prayer book in the lenten devotional uh i'm not much of a journaler so <laughs> but uh but here in, in in the very beginning of the prayer book memento mori in the last things uh, it says memento mori or remember your death is a phrase long associated with the practice of remembering the unpredictable and inevitable end of one's life the spiritual practice of memento mori and the symbols and sayings associated with it were particularly popular in the medieval church but the tradition of remembering one's death stretches back to the very beginning of salvation history after the first sin, God reminds Adam and Eve of their mortality. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. Genesis 3.19 God's words continue to echo throughout the Old Testament, reminding readers of life's brevity, while exhorting them to remember their death. The book of Sirach urges, In whatever you do, Remember your last days, and you will never sin. The psalmist prays, Teach us to count our, la our days aright, that we may gain wisdom of heart. Psalms 90, 12. In the New Testament, Jesus exhorts his disciples to pick up their crosses daily and to remember their death as they follow him to the place of the skull. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Luke 9.23 Even if one does not believe the Christian message of salvation, the rich, ancient tradition of remembering death can bring joy, focus, and fruitfulness to anyone's life. However, for the Christian, it is a practice that extends beyond the reality of earthly life and bodily death. Just as death is a doorway to the afterlife, meditation on death is the doorway to meditation on the afterlife, or what have traditionally been called the last things. Meditation on death 
as well as judgment, hell, and heaven, has been encouraged in the church for centuries. Why meditate on these things? Because thinking about the definite end of life, death, necessarily leads to the consideration of life's possible ends. Though an essential part of the Christian life, meditation on the last things has unfortunately become less prevalent in recent years. As early as 1954, Blessed James Alberioni, the founder of my religious congregation, the Daughters of St. Paul, noted that people were losing interest in the last things. Speaking to our religious sisters, he once said, Nowadays there is little human respect for meditation on the last things. They say it is no longer modern to meditate on them. It seems to me, however, that death is always modern. It is active every day, and heaven is always modern, and hell is always modern. Do not let yourselves be taken in by this bad habit. Alberioni's prophetic words are meant for all of us in every state of life. As Christians, we must pray with and meditate on death and the afterlife. Many suggest it is old-fashioned or unnecessary, but med meditation on the last things is vital to the Christian life. We should regularly consider these important questions. Where am I headed? How are my choices diminishing my humanity and leading me to evil? How are my choices corresponding to God's grace and leading me to what is true and good? Am I living for myself and indulging in my basest desires, or am I living for heaven, union with God? Holiness requires that we ask ourselves these questions and consider all the possible answers. This prayer book aids in the journey of meditating on death and all of the last things. We meditate on death, judgment, hell, and heaven because we are meant for sanctity. We are called to become saints. Heaven is our goal, and Jesus has won it for us. But we must not become complacent. Remembrance of the last things, beginning with death, opens our hearts to the work God wants to do in us before our last day on earth. Remember your death. Teresa Lethia Noble, FSP. I'll do an episode one day about a little bit more about Memento Mori. A little bit more about remembering your death. I'll go over some of the prayers and practices. Uh, and I'll go over some of the other things. But I just wanted to read about Memento Mori to all of you. Uh, and read through while I was reading through all of that we we uh, read the verse from Sirach 736 in whatever you do remember your last days and you will never sin uh, that's one of the things that Al Ligori uh, was, was talking about meditate on you know, frequent thought of these the last things on death you'll you'll have this perspective that you want salvation you want things to be uh, you want that eternal reward so yeah 
we'll uh, we'll go ahead and end it there, and we'll say that that was the fifth pillar: death, rebirth into a heavenly paradise. You see, the Buddhists and they have their reincarnation. Their soul moves from body to body, life to death to body to new body to new life to death to new body to new life to death. Zen is every new moment, present moment, every new moment of the present experience is a new rebirth. <laughs> and for the Catholics, the true rebirth is the resurrection. And that is what we believe. A resurrection in, into, uh, with a resurrected and or a glorified body that we are reborn into a heavenly paradise through Christ where we receive glorified bodies beatific vision where we are judged and where we we live out the uh, sentence of that judging for all eternity either in heaven or in hell that is the episode as i said um death rebirth into a heavenly paradise so all right so that's our five pillars wrapping them up celebratory celebrate happy times all right so if you guys would want to get a hold of me let me know what you think about the five pillars of being Catholic with a Zen mind. Once again, they are meditation, having a Zen mind, original sin, which creates suffering, using suffering to offer it up as a sacrifice for our Lord, and then death, not being afraid of death and seeing death as a rebirth into a glorified body that is the same body that we inhabit on earth a rebirth into the kingdom of heaven the rebirth in Christ so some uh, upcoming episodes here we're going to be doing um, a history of Zen I'll be inviting back my cousin to guess and he will be guiding us through the history of Zen Buddhism and early Buddhism um, we'll have some other ones we'll have soon we'll have a, a differences a fundamental differences between Buddhism and between Catholicism or Christianity in general I have a new guest a friend of mine I've asked to come on to the show and he's agreed and I'm exceedingly excited for that episode um, and we'll talk about that more at a different time but we'll also talk about some virtues of a Zen mind Catholic we'll talk about uh, scriptures we'll talk about um, memento mori we'll talk about rosaries we'll talk about meditative prayers and practices this isn't the end my friends we've only just begun and if you have any ideas of any topics that you might want to uh, 
share with me. You can catch me on Facebook, Catholic with the Zen Mind. You can find me on Twitter at uh, KFC underscore Crusader. Or if you just want to be direct, I now have an email for Catholic with the Zen Mind. Catholic Zen Mind at Yahoo.com. It's that simple, that easy. So you can email me there. You can hit me on hit me up on Facebook, Catholic with the Zen Mind. You can find me on Twitter at KFC under underscore Crusader. And you can give me your comments. You can follow me. You can share. I'll I post my articles. I post my episodes up there. But you can also give me suggestions for future episodes but anyways everybody this is the end of the episode we've reached it not taking any more time send hard everybody pray harder god bless